This is the Pain Information Network. Dr. Silverman is in the house. Welcome back. I have Dr. Silverman on today. It's a pre-recorded episode that uh, I, I wanted to wait until it became timely with opioids. And we're getting so many requests for comments and discussions on opioids that I'm just going to keep it going. I'll keep this discussion going until somebody says, stop, stop, I've had enough. This subject is a, is a big one. It's a sensitive one. And no more sensitive than when I had Lee Snook on. If you remember, we talked about access to care. Access to opioids is going to become a problem. We're starting to see uh, some misunderstandings, some fear after the CDC guidelines, uh, see earlier podcast, uh, because some primary care physicians and others are seeing those guidelines as a mandate or as something that must be followed. In other words, a standard of care. And that's not what they are at all. I, actually, I think the CDC had a very sincere desire to use their influence as a very uh, notable organization that is of high quality to impart that opioids are not just a simple prescription or a simple pill. Uh, It's not like an antibiotic. Opioids need a certain level of skill and care. So enter Dr. Silverman. Dr. Silverman was one of the individuals that actually helped with the CDC recommendations. He represented the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, pain physicians to an extent, and so he has a, a very unique understanding. And where it also takes us is his understanding back a page or two to Broward County, Florida. And if you don't know much about Broward County, you will soon. That was ground zero for the opioid problem in America. He'll talk a little bit about that. He'll talk about oxycodone. He'll talk about abuse, diversion, and pretty much just a a real good discussion on how Florida took uh, lemons and made lemonade, although (laughs) there was an access problem for a little while after they uh, imposed the uh, state uh, mandates on controlled substances. He'll talk about that. So uh, I think we should probably get to it. My guest again is Dr. Sandy Silverman, and uh, Dr. Silverman was a principal in, well, I'll just say saved a lot of lives, uh, southern Florida, gripped by an opioid epidemic. Uh, Dr. Silverman led the charge to make some uh, big changes down there. He was helped by a lot of uh, forward-thinking physicians that, uh, again, doing the right thing for the right reasons. Uh, these people were uh, the, uh, the, the leaders in pain medicine in southern Florida, where we have a lot of elderly and legitimate patients, but unfortunately, the unscrupulous uh, people uh, moved into southern Florida, Broward County, and set up pill mills. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, Hans. Um, Well, to understand how this happened and why it happened, people always ask, why would this happen? How could this happen? i got to give you a little history. So in the mid-90s, there were internet sales of controlled substances like 
hydrocodone and oxycodone and Xanax, and uh, most of them were based offshore in the Caribbean, the, the, the companies. Well, the DEA shut that down pretty quickly in the mid-'90s, and they simply moved a little bit closer to Florida. And they moved into South Florida, specifically Broward County, and they opened up what we affectionately call pill mills. And these were basically medical clinics, freestanding clinics, often in strip strip malls, owned often by non-physicians, and they would employ physicians, and the job was basically for, for the physician to write as many prescriptions as possible during the day, during a day. These were strictly cash businesses, and patients would come back because they would develop physical dependence, and probably a very small fraction of these patients were helped. Well, but a very small fraction. But a lot of the patients were also criminals themselves. They were diverting the medicines and selling them. And uh, this South Florida became well known for this. People came from out of state. It would off, you would often see uh, cars parked around these strip malls with out of state licenses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it became such a problem that the volume of medicines coming out of Florida were essentially killing people. In Florida, we were having up to seven people a day dying from painkiller prescription overdoses at the height of the epidemic about 2008. But we finally convinced the legislature uh, through the Broward County Medical Association, through the Broward Commission on Substance Abuse, and the Florida Medical Association, in addition to FSIP, Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, to do something. And we passed a series of laws, and we had a database um, passed that was implemented, and we pretty much shut this down and 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 i think florida is a much much safer place now but it took a decade to do it i love that uh question you asked where where in the country are the hot zones for oxycodone tell them what they showed you oh okay so in the midst of this epidemic in 2008 2007 sometime around there and the broward County Commission for Substance Abuse, which is uh, administered by the United Way. I'm on that commission with a number of other folks, some of them attorneys, judges, law enforcement. And we often, we have an epidemiologist that works with us too, and we were trying to get information on where or who are, who are, who's buying these medicines and how many physicians or how much are the physicians purchasing. So prior to the pill mill law, which shut these folks down, in Florida in the mid-2000s, the, actually throughout the 2000s, up until about 2011, you could dispense in your office. In other words, give a bottle of pain medicine to a patient. Of course, they would charge patients for it, but it was legal to do that. You could become a dispensing physician without the regulations of a pharmacy, etc. Uh, so eventually the law, by the way, outlawed that. You could no longer dispense Schedule two or three medications, which included most of the painkillers that we talk about. So up until that point, Physicians were dispensing oxycodone and lots of it. So we asked the DEA that tracks purchases, and they know all the purchases and who's buying them, of wholesale purchases and then subsequently to physicians of pain medicine. So we asked them, give us the top 50 dispensing physicians of oxycodone in the United States. And they gave it to us, and it turns out that 49 were in Florida. And we said, well, we want the United States. And they said, this is the United States. So 49 out of 50 were in Florida. One was in southeastern Ohio. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And, of course, there were well-qualified physicians in these pill mills, right? 
Uh, well, no. <laughs> a lot of times these physicians were retired. I mean, there's famous videos that the DA shows of a pediatrician doing this. Uh, pathologists were hired, uh, retired gynecologists, people uh, who basically had no pain experience or had never done this before in their life and had an active DEA number to enable them to write scripts, and that's basically what they did, just write prescriptions. Yep, and it's real common for uh, a, a clinic to have security walking around isn't it well yes uh these clinics and there's a if you really want to watch this you can google uh oxycontin express which is on vanguard which is a a cable station i think uh they also interviewed me for that but it's about a 52 minute documentary on this and it's really it's really mind-blowing i mean you it's basically a tour of the pill mills of south florida through the eyes of one particular addict named Todd, who is now deceased. Uh, I know his mother. He served on the board with me. Uh, but he would show you, this is how you go, and I can sh- tell you this doctor, take you to this guy, because I know you can get meds there. And it's just unbelievable to see what happened. And you talk about security. They'd have security guards at these clinics because they'd have hundreds and hundreds of people lined up from out of state, and some people would get violent, some people wouldn't. Don't forget, a lot of the patients were also criminals because they were selling these medicines. Cash. It's a cash business. And uh, they'd have security people with, you know, black SUVs uh, parked outside. And the interviewer in the OxyContin Express, the woman who's doing the interviewing, I guess she kind of got too close to them in one pill mill. And, of course, they were filming. So they left and they were followed by this big black SUV for many miles. And she says, we're being followed by some SUV and we don't know what's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh this was the nefarious world of the pill mill, which is uh, fortunately now over. Yeah, I do a little bit of speaking occasionally for the DEA, and they showed a great video. I think you could get these on YouTube, but a great video where um, the patients were milling around the pain clinic so much before it opened, they were actually told, don't hang around the clinic, stay in your car. Until it's time to open. So what pulls up? Uh, some kind of uh, exotic car, uh, the, quote, doctor. And the patients see that, and another nice car pulls up, another nice car pulls up. And it's like watching ants come out of an ant hill, going like a, a couple of hundred people toward the front door and starting to line around this uh, building. So a uh, little bit of suspicion there, I would guess. Um, okay, so what else are they selling? What's the Holy Trinity? Okay, so there's the Holy, tr- there's the uh, Trinity, and then the Holy Trinity. Okay, so the Trinity is hydrocodone, soma, and Xanax. Okay, the Holy Trinity is oxycodone, soma, and Xanax. Oxycodone and hydrocodone are painkillers. Soma, the generic name is carisoprodol is a muscle relaxant. But the thing about it is, it gets metabolized in your body to something called meprobamate, which is a barbiturate. And barbiturates were used in the 60s before they had benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax for um, sleep and sometimes for anxiety. So Soma is a crappy drug for us because it actually... Uh, and the metabolite doesn't even do anything except make you dependent on it. So most pain management physicians don't like to use Soma. But Soma has a street value for obvious reasons because you get 
a little bit buzzed on it. And the thing is, when you combine these medicines together, they are synergistic. In other words, 2 plus 2 is not 4. 2 plus 2 is 6. And there's a boost. About 60% of pain clinics, uh, 60% of pain patients in some studies have been noted to actually use Xanax or benzodiazepines to augment the feeling of euphoria from the pain medicine. Um, So you got painkillers, oxycodone, hydrocodone, soma, muscle relaxant, and Xanax or alprazolam, which is a, a benzodiazepine. These medicines are lethal when you combine them lethal this is a great way to ensure that you die overdose with this combination is common very common and it's particularly common if you happen to be someone that happens to be involved in this or know someone your biggest risks with these medicines you for example you might know someone taking these medicines and they take a lot of them and they're not they're functioning or they're maybe barely functioning but they're not dying and they say well they built up a tolerance to it don't be fooled, okay? What happens is if you stop these medicines for a while and become uh, you know, sober, if you will, and then you go back to them, you run the biggest risk of overdose. That's a very, very um, quick potential to die. So you've stopped them for a while. Your tolerance level goes back down. You restart them, and bang, you die. The other thing that people don't realize is that when they take a combination of these medicines, their blood levels raise, and they are very close to dying. They're in that very small therapeutic window. And what happens is one day they might go out and have a couple of drinks. One day they might say, you know, I'm taking my oxycodone and my Soma and my Xanax as prescribed, but I had a really bad day. My friend gave me an Oxycontin. I'm going to try that. And bang, you die. It just takes that little thing to push you over to die. And so people who are listening to this, who know friends who are doing this, or even themselves... Get off this stuff because it's not sustainable. Yeah, and what I do is I tell people that they don't know how close they are to dying. Um, We wouldn't have almost 20,000 people a year die from prescription drug overdoses, not to mention the 140,000 overdoses, uh, if they thought they... uh, they had it under control. They all think they have it under control. I liken it to the Everest uh, kill zone. Uh, there's a certain number of people that can climb Everest, and they come back down. And there's a certain number of people that get pulmonary edema, that have all sorts of uh, problems with intracranial bleeding and the like. They just get into a zone. They can't help it. They don't know they're going to get it. They're dead. So the problem is, uh, as Marilyn Monroe found out, and then many other celebrities, you take these drugs, and it isn't necessarily the drug. It's the metabolite or the combination. And when you put alcohol in there, down you go. So. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, prescription opioid or prescription overdoses are older than you think. Like you said, Marilyn Monroe and Elvis were victims of this as well. And they all think they have it under control. And, and that's the thing. Um, I think I mentioned this before. This is what we see with heroin. Very, very common. A, a, a con gets out of jail, and they go straight back to their heroin dealer. Well, how much were you taking before? Well, uh, it was a nickel bag. No tolerance. Next thing you know, they're dead. So tolerance is a very key issue, often underappreciated. But addiction is a family disease, so you, uh, you brought it out right. Uh, get people involved. Do interventions. Do whatever you can. You're saving lives. You really are saving lives. So, Well, what else should we add here? Uh, I just think that 
<clears throat> if you're gonna, if you got chronic pain, uh, go to your pain doctor. Uh, understand why he or she is doing some things, but ask questions. If you're on a pain medicine and you're getting it month after month, uh, but we have people that we do this, that they get it month after month, but they're on a stable dose and they're functional. As long as your doctor asks those questions, how are you doing, are you functional, etc., uh, it might be a good idea. But you really should be very careful about mixing these with medicines like Valium and Ativan and Xanax. Very careful. And if you're really not functional, you're sort of, eh, you know, I'm like, I'm not really getting anywhere and I'm just not, I'm just sort of stuck. Talk to your doctor about getting off these medicines. Sandy, this is, this is a daily thing for me. I know it is for you, too. I have trouble sleeping. I need something for sleep. You know, I have to tell you, as a physician, all my red flags go up when I hear that. First of all, sleep is organic. It's a very important part of life. If you don't sleep, you die. You have to have sleep, and you have to have different stages of sleep. But lack of sleep is a symptom, and it can be a symptom of a disease. Um, It could be... A symptom of morbid obesity leading to uh, a number of problems, and we ca- might even call it sleep apnea. So you need a diagnosis. What do you do when somebody tells you, I can't sleep? Well, you need a diagnosis. That's what you need. Why are you not sleeping, okay? And there are doctors, there are sleep doctors there are st- that, that specialize in this, and there can be all sorts of reasons for not sleeping. And in our world, the most common reason is pain, okay? Uh, pain can keep you awake at night, okay? So... Uh, if we can get people to sleep and manage their pain with a medicine that's non-addictive and non-dependency forming, we're like halfway there. And I really focus on that in my practice. And I try to get people to sleep and I try to use non-quote sleeping pills, use medicines that manage pain that are not dependency forming. Now, there are other people that might not sleep because of sleep apnea. Okay, uh, and then other organic reasons for not sleeping that needs to be investigated. You should sp- speak to your doctor about that. Uh, if you know that pain's keeping you up, and then when the pain goes away, you sleep. I think you've kind of figured it out. But you might have some other things going on, like sleep apnea or other, um, you know, neurological diseases or another neurological bases for uh, sleep deprivation. Yeah, and, you know, once again, you mentioned benzodiazepines, and I look at the Ambien's and the Lunesta's, uh, pretty much the same thing as a benzo, although not quite as dramatic. It's a sedative, and it's a sedative hypnotic. And they are benzos. They, well, are, they are. They are alpha-1 specific benzos. They're Z drugs. Yeah, they're schedule Z-drugs. 4 drugs. They, uh, they work like other benzodiazepines, like the Valiums, like the Xanax, but they have a much greater hypnotic effect as opposed to a anxiety effect. Yeah. So they really knock you out. They reduce the the latency period. In other words, they make it, you get to fa- your phases. There's different phases of sleep, different stages of sleep. You get there quicker with these medicines. Um, so they're somewhat cleaner than, say, taking a Valium or a Xanax that actually can disrupt sleep architecture. Um, 
when you look at evidence-based medicine, which is everybody's doing now and we're all kind of being forced to look at it, there's really no good evidence for the use of benzodiazepines. Now, Hans mentioned something interesting. Well, I can't sleep at night. I take a painkiller or I feel I have anxiety. I take my Vicodin or I have this. I take that pill, this, that pill. That's called chemical coping. And we are a nation of chemical copers, unfortunately. So patients will often use, say, a pain medicine to help sleep. Because it makes yeah. them a little drowsy, a little euphoric. That's chemical coping. They're using a medicine. It sounds like addiction, but they're using a medicine intended for one purpose to, to treat another symptom. Or if you find yourself during the day, uh, you know, I take my Vicodin and I have suddenly a lot of energy and a big boost and I can get stuff done. But when I don't take it, uh, yeah, I have more pain, but I feel crappy and I feel worn down and I feel just like I don't want to do stuff. That is a sign of physical dependence and withdrawal. Okay. You're right. <clears throat> you know, the I need my Xanax that helps me sleep is underscored mm-hmm. by the fact that you said it. It interrupts sleep architecture. You're not sleeping as well as you think you are. Uh, pain may keep you in alpha-2 intrusion. You don't get down to stage 4. So you're not really treating what you need to treat. You need stage 4 sleep. And really, you need a sleep study. You need to kind of figure out what is going on. The other thing about benzodiazepines is they drop your serotonin level. That doesn't help you. And that might make uh, pain a little bit worse. And the dependency with these drugs is uh, incredible. Lastly, about uh, drugs like the Ambience and and whatnot, they have their own dangers, such as sleepwalking. People actually sometimes get in cars and drive. And uh, one of the Kennedys recently had a problem with that. Sleep eating, too, by the way. Yeah. yeah, you can do that as well. Uh, and there are cases of ambient dependence, ambient addiction. It can happen. Uh, any controlled substance, it's, it's a called a controlled substance for a reason because it, is depend, it, has, a, it has the potential to being addictive, addictive in, some, in some method or some scale. Uh, but, you know, used appropriately, they can be effective for for some patients. The problem is they're way overutilized, and uh, we've got a nation of chemical copers, unfortunately. And some of it's the patient's fault because they demand it and they want satisfaction. We're a nation of we want instantaneous gratification. If you don't do this, I'm going to sue you or I'm going to write a letter to the medical board. Or And the doctors are can be enablers. I don't want to get a bad recommendation. I want to keep my business. I want to make people happy. Tough, tough balancing act. It is. And those online rating systems, I'm telling you, sometimes the best doctors have the lowest rating scores for that very reason. Um, You know, I I think I I could just add one thing to this. Um, There are drugs that do help you sleep, that help with pain. And we'll kind of wrap it up with this. Gabapentinoids uh, are utilized but probably underutilized, particularly in the primary care community. That's the the Neurontins of the world. They actually enhance stage 4 sleep. They diminish the amount of opioid you need because they potentiate it, so it's uh, opioid sparing. Uh, Their dependency is very, very low. I don't think I've ever seen it. And um, they, they just uh, they do a lot for you without a lot of downside. We have a lot of experience with them. Um, do you ever use them for sleep? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of patients say they're the best sleep medicine they ever took. I agree. Um, gabapentin or these gabapentinoids actually don't 
actually bind to the GABA receptor. They have somewhat of a very indirect effect with GABA. By the way, GABA is gamma amino butyric acid. It is the uh, it is the major inhibitory, which means slow down neurotransmitter in your body. It is the major one. If we turned on all the GABA in your brain, you'd go into a coma. Yep. Uh, GABA is an inhibitory, whereas dopamine is stimulatory and glutamate is stimulatory. So we need a balance of this. But too much GABA, you go into a coma. Yeah, and there's two types, GABA A and GABA B. And we don't really need to elaborate too much on that. It's really gone on the scope here. But... We can uh, we can round this out uh, with uh, saying uh, thanks for being on these two podcasts uh, and enjoyed uh, seeing you uh, here at uh, uh, the uh, Georgia meeting. Um, anything else? I know it's always a pleasure, Hans, and good luck. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Dr. Silverman, and thank you for your work in Southern Florida. Uh, that's a good one. It just shows us how quickly. Misuse, abuse, and diversion can get out of control with opioids. And what it can do, it's so destructive for people's lives. And then there's the addiction side. There's the uh, financial side, the ripple effect, many layers to that onion that goes through the entire family and beyond. So, you know, the opioids are a popular discussion point, and we'll continue that. In the future episodes, I'm going to talk about drug screens, what they mean, um, and adherence monitoring. I'm actually going to step it up a little, and for providers of uh, pain care and just healthcare in general, I'm going to uh, talk to you directly about adherence monitoring and urine screens. And I think everybody will take something away from it. But once again, could you please go to iTunes and you you could give us some stars, please and I really would appreciate if you would subscribe. It helps us rank and helps people find us. We'll see you soon.